is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former members of the U.S. intelligence community. And today I have a fascinating interviewee. Her name is Alex Finley. She is a former CIA director of operations officer with service in both Africa and Europe. She is a published author. She's been a journalist and is becoming something of a, a television personality as well. And she has a brand new book out, Victor in Trouble. Alex, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you so much for having me. Alex, tell our uh, viewing audience just a little bit about your background. Uh, what did you do before you joined the agency? I was a journalist, actually, before I joined, um, but I had done, I had always done sort of international things. I got a master's degree in international relations. And when I went into journalism, I was much more interested in sort of the international aspects of that. Um, but then the opportunity came along actually to join the agency. And I really liked the idea of the adventure and being out and about. And so, and I was a little bit disillusioned actually with my time uh, working in journalism. And so I decided, yeah, it was, it was a, a good time to try something else. What were the elements in your decision to join the agency? Uh, well, mostly somebody just came to me and said, you know, I th somebody I knew uh, uh, who said, I think you'd be really good at this. Like I said, I had an international background. I spoke a few languages and I was, uh, you know, ready to sort of go out and try some adventure. So he recruited me and, and brought me in and and that was it. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't uh, a, like, you know, trench coat guy at the door and, you know, the walking down the streets with clandestinely or something. It was pretty straightforward, actually. Somebody came to me and said, I think you'd be really good at this. And that was it. I went through the process. What was it like for a young woman um, when you joined the agency? Um, I think a number of things had changed. I heard a number of stories from uh, colleagues who had been there you know, long before I was, um, who who had been there sort of during the, the Cold War years. I joined in 2003. Um, and, you know, you heard these stories about sort of the old boys club and how difficult it was uh, for the spouses and stuff. And um, while I would say some of that had changed, not not all of it had changed. I think there was still uh, some difficulty inside uh, in terms of, you know, the family. I, I think people who've uh, worked overseas for CIA or even for Foreign Service or any of these other agencies that go overseas, um, it isn't it isn't just uh, the job. It's a whole lifestyle. And the entire family is is brought into that. That's actually one of the things I try to capture in my books, uh, because the, the families are very much part of what this case officer is doing. Um, and I, I think that that hadn't completely developed, hadn't quite entered the 21st century. My understanding is they're still not quite there. It's better than it used to be. Um, but I, I don't think it's it's fully there yet. And so I do think, you know, uh, Couples, I think, still have some problems where, you know, both of them have have jobs and have uh, income and you need both incomes to pay for your life. And then you go overseas that, you know, the, the other spouse needs to be able to still work and do something. Um, I think telecommuting has probably changed a lot of that. But back when I was in the agency, that that wasn't the case. And so, you know, if you if you were overseas with a family, uh, most people found jobs sort of inside the government. 
I believe I told you off camera that um, my wife was one of the first two female CTs. Yeah, and, that's, um, that's she was a pioneer. So we, we know that journey. And uh, in fact, um, since we were one of the first, we did a lot of uh, kind of coaching and mentoring of what we call tandem couples in the agency, because after us, there were many more um, men and women who were getting married and, and trying to um, manage careers together. Yeah, I think it's it's not easy. It's not easy regardless um, today, you know, I, wherever you are, even if you stay within the United States. And I think, of course, you know, with our, our line of work, it, it is even more difficult. Yeah. So you've got a new book out, Victor in Trouble. Yes. It's the third in a series. Yes. What's it about? Victor in Trouble um, grew out of my time covering uh, Russian influence operations. I uh, back in 2016, after Russian interference in the U.S. elections, I started writing and researching a lot about Russian influence operations. And so the book itself grew out of that. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, I'll give just a quick sort of recap of the book. Um, the protagonist is uh, Victor Caro, who's the case officer in all three of my books. Victor in the Rubble is the first. Victor in the Jungle is the second. And now Victor in Trouble is the third. And he arrives with his family in Rome for what he is hoping will be a wonderful, relaxed uh, retirement tour the last two years, uh, enjoying pasta and great wine before reaching sort of the retirement finish line. Um, but the world has other plans for him, it turns out. And uh, he finds himself uh, caught up in a bunch of Russian influence operations, running an asset while a disinformation campaign is going around him and there's all kinds of assassinations and intrigue and he has to figure out how to how to handle it but on top of that he has to keep his asset safe from some of the very politicians that have been corrupted by these russian influence operations so as i said it it grew out of my uh, covering of the russian uh, election interference in the united states but one of the things that was really uh, frustrating me as we discussed this in, in uh, you know, in public debate in the United States was that it was always put through a political lens. It was always discussed with Trump right in the center of it. And while that was an important aspect of it, what was lost was what Putin was doing. And so this these Russian operations, uh, I think, got lost as a national security concern in the United States because we were so ready to discuss it only in political terms. And so I started researching a lot about what the Russians were doing in Europe. And of course, they were running very similar operations across Europe. We have examples in France, in Britain, Germany, Austria, Spain, Italy, the list just goes on. And um, and so I have really tried in this book to show that this isn't a political issue, that this is very much a national security issue, that this is a play that Russia has been running on all sides of democracy. And that in the end, that's what we need to be focusing on is the threat of this authoritarianism against democracy and not view it through a left right political lens. So all of that is encompassed in Victor in Trouble. Well, good for you. And as we well know, um, Russian influence operations go all the way back to the Bolshevik Revolution, and they've never stopped. It may be new for the American public, but it certainly isn't for intelligence professionals. Correct. 
Yeah, it's oh. it's been there a really long time. And that, that actually was, you know, very frustrating because this idea of disinformation and propaganda, like you said, for the public was uh, you know, was sort of new and they were learning sort of how to how to deal with it. But I think even some of the, the people in, in charge were, were learning how to deal with it. Um I think that there was some unhappiness under the Obama administration, for example. They they knew that some of this was going on in uh, in 2016. But there was, um, you know, we've heard that Obama was afraid to sort of do too much uh, in, in, and, and wasn't quite clear how to respond to it. I do think that President Biden has shown a, a, um, a good response. I think that they've really started to get much better grasp of how we can use disinformation, protect ourselves from it and uh, use it to, you know, show what it is that Russia is doing. I think we've seen many examples of that in the war in Ukraine. Unfortunately, I think that this propaganda and disinformation, though, has entered our entire media ecosystem. And we have our own politicians who are using, who are willing to use all of those same tactics just for their own political gain, which is unfortunate. More than unfortunate, it's actually kind of a national security threat in itself. Do you draw upon your experiences in Africa and Europe um, for material for the books? I do. I mean, I can't say, of course, where I was, um, but for sure in Victor in the Rubble, which is the, the first book that I wrote, um, which is a satire of the war on terror. It takes place in West Africa and uh, follows a, a terrorist who uh, is based in West Africa and his uh, his terrorist group is a, an offshoot of sort of the main terrorist group, which is often a country called Rubblestan which looks remarkably like Afghanistan. And um, so for sure, uh, in that book, my time in West Africa absolutely played a role um, in in the setting, but also in a lot of what Victor goes through in that first book, which um, is a lot of bureaucracy. So the, the first book is really about frustration and absurdity in the war on terror. And uh, a lot of that stems out of my time in, in West Africa. And then, of course, the, this third book uh, takes place in Rome. Like I said, I can't say where I was in Europe, um, but uh, I will say, you know, there are certain aspects of of living in Europe that that we can catch on to. We can, add, you know, say take place in a number of big cities. And Rome was just a great place to do it. Um, one, just because I love the city uh, and I got to go there and do research, but also um it's such a chaotic city that it's actually really great. I think probably for running operations, there's so much chaos that you can sort of hide, hide the operations under that noise. And, um, you know, we hear about some of these cities that are uh, sort of attract uh, great places for operators to be. I would imagine that, that Rome is one of those. So you chose uh, political satire as the medium for your books. Why did you choose that? Um, I So all of this started with the first book, Victor in the Rubble, um, which actually grew, it, it became something of a catharsis for me. I had a lot of frustration um, living my small role in the war on terror. Um, I joined the agency in 2003. So it was just after 9-11 and just before the invasion of Iraq. And there were all kinds of changes going on internally and, of course, publicly with the agency being blamed for everything that was going wrong. Um, so there was a lot that was happening at, at that time. And I had, you know, I, I didn't have a huge role, but I was behind the scenes and I got to see what was happening. 
And it, it was frustrating and it was also very absurd. And as I collected my own anecdotes from my own experiences and then anecdotes from colleagues and friends as we sort of, you know, suffered and, and moved through this tumultuous time together, um, to me, it became a way of sort of coping, uh, I think, with a lot of what we what we went through and you can cope with it in many different ways. And for me, it's it's through humor. I like to find what is absurd in something and I like to uh, use humor to to work through it. But I also think that satire can really help bring reality forward in an engaging way. It, it, it can be humorous and it can be satirical, but it can actually really highlight important and real true things, which we don't always see when we discuss things in a very serious way. And I, I think my books do that. Um, I've had a number of responses on the first book, Victor in, in the Rubble, as I said, uh, from people who also went through the war on terror and who've said, yeah, you nailed it and you really captured it. And um, I, I hope that with this third book, Victor in Trouble, I, I, I hope that I'll get some of that same from people who have really been yelling and screaming for years, hey, we're stuck, you know, bad things are really happening around here with these influence operations and uh, how truth doesn't exist anymore and information is being manipulated. And um, I think Victor in Trouble does a good job, again, of, of highlighting some of those truths. But in a fun and engaging way. <laughs> Alex, as I said to you off camera, uh, you've done a great job of reinventing yourself over time, not just having a very successful career uh, in the agency, but also afterwards. Um, tell our audience a little bit about some of the other projects that you're involved in. Well, um, so I, there's this new thing now called Yacht Watch, which sort of came, it, a lot of people think it came out of nowhere, but again, it actually grew out of my research for Victor in Trouble. So um, in researching all of this, uh, these Russian influence operations, one of the, the key things that stuck out to me was this integral role of the oligarchs in uh, Putin's destabilization operations. So these oligarchs um, support Putin, as a dictator, they are given permission in return to loot uh, the money out of out of Russia. And they then, as also part of a return to Putin, they, they have to help him with these destabilization operations. So some of the money that they loot and that belongs to them, uh, there is direction from Putin as to how to spend it strategically. That is how to spend it for the state, for Putin and for his agenda. And we know, for example, from Robert Mueller's investigation that uh, Putin had uh, quarterly meetings with his oligarchs where, where they would go over priorities and discuss how some of that money should be spent. We know from, uh, again, from Mueller's investigation into the Internet Research Agency that uh, the oligarch, whether this one particular oligarch, uh, Prigozhin, for example, paid for the Internet Research Agency and was the financing and funding behind one of the main disinformation vehicles uh, that was affecting our elections. So the oligarchs really played this integral role in the destabilization activities, while at the same time they would then come to places like Europe and enjoy all the benefits of democracy, the same democracy that they were actually working to destabilize. 
and they come to Europe and they buy enormous houses and they spend their money here and they launder their money here. And one of their favorite things to spend money on is mega yachts. And because I live in Barcelona, um, I became pretty familiar with a lot of these yachts because they're here. So one of the, the main shipyards here in the Mediterranean and all the oligarchs love to spend their summers in the Mediterranean. Uh, there is a shipyard here called MB92, and it's one of the few in the world that can handle yachts of this size and uh, that are this advanced and high tech. I mean, we're talking, you know, these are six, seven hundred million dollar pieces of equipment. These are they're enormous. They have anti-defense missile systems or anti-missile defense systems and advanced radar and swimming pools that turn into disco and other swimming pools that turn into helipads and retractable helicopter hangars. It's it's a little bit insane. And so you have very few places where these boats can be taken care of. And it happens to be that Barcelona is is one of those places. So I had become even before the war, um, I had become familiar with a lot of the boats. And again, since I was researching my book and my book has an oligarch, and if you have an oligarch, you have to have a yacht. So I had been researching all of these yachts. So when the invasion came, or even before the invasion came, actually, I, I started highlighting uh, the Russian mega yachts that were here in Barcelona. It seemed clear to me that this war was going to happen. And it also seemed clear to me that the, the next step was going to be sanctions on the oligarchs, uh, because that was one of the things with the national security circles that we had been discussing. And so uh, in anticipation of that, I started highlighting um, which yachts were here in Barcelona. And that slowly, uh, not even slowly, pretty quickly, uh, that turned into Yacht Watch. Um, by chance, one day I was down at the port and uh, Solaris, which is a $600 million yacht owned by Roman Abramovich, which had been here in the shipyard for several weeks, um, was out running sea trials. And I happened to catch it while it was out. And I did a Twitter thread about it and it went viral. So uh, from that point on, uh, Yacht Watch uh, was, became pretty popular. And all of us together sort of started looking at where these yachts are and where they were going. We, we caught them as they were leaving just before sanctions hit them. Um, and people started trying to find them even after uh, a number of them turned off their tracking systems, for example. And so this, uh, yes, yeah, so I've now, I've now become the yacht watcher. What a great story. <laughs> uh, another interesting fact about uh, Putin and the oligarchs is that one of his principal uh, investment advisors is the son of Marcus Wolf. Marcus Wolf, if you're not familiar with that name, mm -mm. was the notorious chief of the HVA, the Stasi's Foreign Intelligence Service. And of course, uh, Putin, as a younger KGB officer, was actually stationed in Leipzig mm -hmm. at the time that East Germany was uh, falling apart. And he had a series of very, very close relationships uh, with senior uh, Stasi officers. And those relationships persist today. I would imagine that that's true. My understanding is during his time in East Germany, he really started building a lot of those networks uh, that that sustained him and helped push him to the top as he later started climbing the ladder over in, in Russia. 
And, and a lot of those uh, former East German criminals are still around and they're actually doing very well. And a lot of them have an alliance with Putin. Yeah, I'm sure. And and I, and I think that's one of the things actually that's not you know really understood is that there, there really is uh, it is a mafia state at this point. And, and they have been using those same types of networks um, for state purposes. You know, I mean, these are really mafia networks, but used for state purposes. Alex, as I mentioned to you uh, before we began recording, we've got a very good outreach to academic audiences. We're trying to build on that and uh, have more and more um, younger viewers and listeners. Do you have any advice for uh, young people, particularly young women, who may be interested in a career in intelligence in the future? Yeah, look, I think it's it's definitely very interesting. And I think the key thing is to be curious, always be curious, uh, even once you leave the intelligence community, stay curious. Um, working for the agency can provide, uh, you know, really interesting uh, career. Uh, in fact, so, so the second book, Victor in the Jungle, after I got my frustration out with Victor in the Rubble, I wrote Victor in the Jungle, and it's much more about adventure and the fun when you have the right team working all together and you actually see a mission accomplished. Sorry, that sounds like sounds like a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, but when you when you actually have the right team that comes together and and manages to to reach the objective, it's it's fantastic. And, you know, you're, you're getting up each day uh, not to make money. You're getting up because you really believe in something. Um, and that is is something that is not easily replaced uh, when you're in the private sector, I think. Um, but that said, it, it was a great and interesting career, but I have absolutely no no regrets about leaving. And, um, you know, there, it, it's no longer expected, um, I think, to, to stay within one career for a very long time. I know people from the agency who retired after 20 years, 30 years, uh, 35 years even. Uh, but I also know some who were there for like me, uh, five, seven, nine years and who then left and said this was a great experience and I took what I could out of it. But now it was time for for something else. And and again, that's for many different reasons. I know people who left for family reasons. Um, you know, they it, it was too much trying for, for the spouse, trying to sort of be what we call the trailing spouse. Um, uh, others who said, no, I just, it's not for me. Uh, others who said it's too difficult to be far away from family that are all back in the United States. There's all kinds of different reasons. Um, but the, uh, the, the people that you will be exposed to and the things that you will learn. And I think the responsibility that's actually given to even very low level people very quickly, uh, is something that I have not seen replicated elsewhere. I want to underscore what you said about it being a way of life. That is very, very true. And the entire family is definitely an important integral component of that. Um, when my wife and I were uh, mentoring tandem couples, kind of the first piece of advice we gave them and the last was talk, 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 and then talk some more. Because everybody's got to be you know, on board with this. And if they're not, you know, there are going to be issues. This is true. And and a really good uh, chief of station also, I think, recognizes that and and does what he or she can to make sure that the families are comfortable and, and have what they need um, and, you know, don't feel isolated. You know, uh, we, we've had, especially during my time that was there, um, 
a number of couples, you know, who had uh, assignments apart, right? Um, the, the families got left behind while the the officers went to Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere. And, uh, you know, somebody who's really good, a good manager knows and says, okay, th this officer is going to do much better if they know that their, their family is taken care of and the family is going to provide much better support. Uh, to the officer to do his or her job if they have the support uh, at home that, that they need. And I think for that, you know, the agency took some time uh, to figure that out. But um, I, I think and hope that, that they've worked that out. But um, that's it. Like you said, if the whole family isn't on board, none of it works. As a chief of station, I would routinely have new officers' spouses in and say, you are my first line of defense. If your husband or wife is overdue and hasn't come home yet, I want you ringing my doorbell. Yep. Uh, you, you would have been a good COS to work for. Sadly, our paths never crossed. <laughs> the new book is called Victor in Trouble. It has both humor and curiosity. It is well worth your time. And I want to thank Alex Finley for appearing today on AFIO Now. Thank you really for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs>